Is there anything you need to get off your chest, Mark? Anything I need to get off my chest? Not particularly. Not that. Not that. Not that isn't going into the episode already. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I wanted to let everyone know that. Uh, thank them for wishing Nicole good luck on her MCAT, because there were like, I don't know, like five or six people who responded saying good luck on Twitter, and she really appreciated it, and it was very nice. Oh, and we have a new new friend of the pod who takes the form of a cat I adopted named Linus. <laughs> I do all the important yeah. updates right at the top, Mark, just so we get those out of the way. It's, um, he's a very cute cat. He's very cute. He's five months old and is nocturnal. He'll sleep all day on me, and then he'll rip around the house at night, just at, just sprinting for no reason. It's pretty crazy. I think you should probably get your cat like checked out. Maybe there's a problem. Now he came back with a clean bill of health already. I know, I know. But he didn't get tested. He... Okay. Okay. I'm not I'm not lying. I'm not lying. He wasn't tested for cat AIDS, and I learned that cat AIDS is a thing that I didn't, cats can get. I didn't know. Wait, is it like related to the AIDS that humans get? It's like it's FIV. It's feline immunodeficiency virus is it just like does it just do kind of similar stuff to hiv or is it actually like related to it i don't fucking know um all i all i know it's it's like the lady we had a a zoom call me me and um my girlfriend had a zoom call with the the shelter just as like um getting prereqs about caring for a cat even though i've had you know seven to ten cats in my life um and and she's and she just said it it's like the feline HIV which was FIV interesting no, i guess that makes sense cuz the h stands for human you're so smart mike do you want to know All what's right. annoying is that nicolo as in nicola machiavelli is spelled with two c's but microsoft word tells me that that is misspelled and that it's correct with only one c but then you google it and it's spelled with two C's. So which one is it? I would go with Google because No, I definitely agree with Google, yeah. This 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 piece of shitty Western technology refuses to format anything I've ever made in it. Which I'm referring to Microsoft Word you, since the fifth grade. What you the only thing do, ever, good thing it's ever given us is word art. Every time you open up the, well, they don't even have word art anymore, do they? Not like they Are used to. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, yeah, the 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 one thing that I do every time when I open up a, when I open up a new word document is that I change the um, the um, like extra space from hitting enter to zero instead of like eighty percent of a space, which is what it is by default, which is really weird because I've never used that on purpose. It's only ever just been something I forgot to take out. You want to hop in? Yeah. (laughs) This has probably been the worst intro we've ever done.
Hello, and welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. And I'm Alex. And today, we're going to be looking at a selection of essays written by Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci on the political party, what it is, and how it should be used. Uh, And these essays are compiled by Quentin... You can say whore. You think it it's like whore? whore? Do you think it's whore? I didn't actually check. Hoare, whore. It's H O A R E. Oh, we could go with the um, fuck. What's his name? Frank Reynolds' presentation. Whore. Um, and then the other one is Jeffrey Noel Smith, and uh, these are taken from Gramsci's prison notebooks. Gramsci was in Italy at the time that Mussolini and his fascists took power and was imprisoned, as fascists tend to do to people that make them look foolish, making this the third episode we've done on works written from a prison cell, the first two being Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail and Abdullah Ajalan's uh, democratic confederalism. And after this, we're going to do Mein Kampf, obviously as the fourth and final political work written from jail that had major implications. We're not doing Mein Kampf. I'm so sorry. No more Hitler. Got it. (laughs) I've heard it's like not even kind of interesting to read, which... It's just ramblings? I can see that. I feel like I'd want to read like a summary at least about like, or like some quotes from it. I've read some sections. I mean, you know what the problem is, is that fascist writing is like always just incel shit it's always just like you can just go on brain cells and you're basically gonna get all the same opinions and and like and like presented in just about as convincing a way i think that i think that mussolini actually is probably one of the more compelling fascists to read because he's got like he's got there's like a romance there's verve to it you know I thought Hitler was like a great orator, so I thought he'd have like I don't amazing know. prose or something. Like, well, you know what it is—is is that like fascist orators have different have different rules and different standards. Like, Trump is a great fascist orator, but like, no, he's not. Yeah, he is. He can't string words together in a sentence. He can rile up a crowd. That doesn't make him a good orator. That's exactly what an orator is supposed to do in that context. Oh my. Okay, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on this, <laughs> not stray too far from the purpose of this episode. Okay. Um, the selection of essays that we'll be reading is in its entirety referred to as The Modern Prince, in reference to a much older work of political theory by Niccolo Machiavelli. In order to understand what Gramsci is talking about, we first have to understand what the prince is and how Gramsci viewed it. Now, Gramsci and I have something in common here, in that we are both big defenders of Machiavelli. For those of you who aren't as familiar, Niccolo Machiavelli is a political writer, was a political writer, whose most famous work is The Prince, written in 1513. The Prince is essentially a handbook for political leaders hoping to be as effective at accomplishing their goals as possible. To this end, Machiavelli leaves no action completely off the table. At points throughout The Prince, Machiavelli advises that a prince should lie, steal, cheat, and murder if it gets him what he wants. 
Today, Machiavelli's name is most often invoked in reference to leaders we don't particularly like, who we want to cast as evil for putting their own ambitions over the well-being of the people, and for doing anything and everything to accomplish their political goals. In American media, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have at times been described as Machiavellian, with the intention of painting them as shrewd and ruthless tyrants. This negative view of Machiavelli's teachings is not just a modern phenomenon. People have been railing against this guy literally for centuries. About two years ago, I embarked on an attempt to write a podcast covering the life and accomplishments of the Prussian king Frederick II. The podcast went nowhere, but I did read some interesting sources, one of which was the Anti-Machiavel, written by a young Frederick in direct opposition to the teachings of the prince. Frederick thought that Machiavelli was teaching the leaders of the world's great nations to be evil, to scorn those over whom they held power. Instead, Anti-Machiavel argues a king should be compassionate, honest, and fair. This is a fairly common reaction to Machiavelli's work, but it's far from the only one. Benedetto Croce, a contemporary of Gramsci and fellow Italian, argued that Machiavelli was simply describing the physics of leadership. He's not stating what a leader should do, but specifically what a leader should do if he wants to accomplish certain specific goals. If a leader wants a reliable army, he should recruit from his own population rather than use mercenaries or foreign troops. If a leader is looking to expand his territory, he should be willing to renege on agreements he's made when advantageous. This view of Machiavelli is one that I personally used to subscribe to. One of the most common things you hear people say about Machiavelli is that his advice is publicly denounced by rulers, but practiced all the same. Frederick, for example, tore into everything Machiavelli said, but went on to embody just about the perfect Machiavellian ruler in his own time on the Prussian throne, and for that he's celebrated as Frederick the Great. Gramsci's perspective is probably the closest to this one. Gramsci argues that the prince reads more like a political manifesto. He writes about how, in politics, there are those in the know and those not in the know. And he argues that Machiavelli is attempting to educate the latter of these groups so that they can participate in the political games already played by the leaders of their time. Will some of these already existing tyrants pick up a useful trick or two from Machiavelli's work? Probably. But the overall effect of the work existing is to make public knowledge that once belonged only to the privileged and the powerful. So just reminding people that the that those with power will do anything they within anything they can to keep that power and just um, reminding them of that was his, was his purpose. On the one hand, but on the other hand, also giving a handbook to those who don't already know how to play the political game, who don't already understand how the relations of power work in reality, and to push them in a direction that, in his opinion, would improve Italian society. And we'll get into what exactly that is in a little bit. One of the big problems Gramsci has with Croce's scientific observer interpretation of Machiavelli is that it takes Machiavelli out of his historical moment. In Machiavelli's time, Italy was fragmented between various smaller states. Europe as a whole was dominated by large states with absolute monarchies. Absolute monarchy appears, from our perspective, to be a pretty reactionary model for a state, but Gramsci is a Marxist, so let's put on our dialectical materialism goggles. What are the fundamental contradictions in Italian society in Machiavelli's time? Simply put, its various leaders had to juggle their internal balance of power and Italy's place in the broader European balance of power at the same time. 
These leaders often employed the help of larger, non-Italian powers in fights against their Italian neighbors. It's for this reason that we see Italy's affairs so heavily dominated by foreign powers at this time. An absolute monarchy would correct this contradiction by eliminating much of the intra-Italian conflict and allowing Italy to focus solely on its broader role in Europe. This change would augment the power of the bourgeoisie, but at the expense of the feudal aristocracy, not the workers. So, while Machiavelli may be advocating for a system that would be a step back for us today, and even for many of his contemporaries, he's still a force of progress when placed in his own time and location. Why did I just dedicate so much time to talking about Machiavelli in a podcast that's supposed to be about Gramsci? Well, because Gramsci spends a lot of time talking about him. But then, why does he spend so much time talking about this guy? Gramsci is encouraging us to draw parallels between what Machiavelli was doing with the prince and what he's doing with his modern prince. Gramsci is attempting to peel back the curtains of how politics gets done, educate the not in the know. He wants to direct a direct line between certain forms of political conduct and desirable results. He assumes that whoever comes to read his work is already on board with the idea that capitalism is bad and the next step in society's development will be socialism. He doesn't waste time arguing this. Instead, Gramsci is looking to sell you a very specific idea, that Italy in the 1930s is once again in need of a prince that will exercise power and correct contradictions, raising Italy to the next stage of social development. One difference between Gramsci's prince and Machiavelli's? Gramsci's isn't a person, but a political party. So, what's a political party? Like most political questions, there's an easy answer and a useful answer. The easy answer is that a political party is a discreetly defined organization with a list of members and a platform, which it ideally takes political action to turn into official policy. The major political parties of the United States fit nicely into this definition. However, Gramsci wants us not to take this definition uncritically. Let's think like Marxists here. Instead of asking, how does a party define itself, let's ask, what does a party materially do? Gramsci's answer to this question is that parties fight for hegemony, the political supremacy of one social group over another. This answer in turn creates a whole host of new questions, though. If we apply this definition of party to the American political system, then the way we think and talk about our parties makes no sense. We notice that, sometimes, political parties are internally divided over which social group they're fighting for. Much more often, we notice that many social groups, particularly those least privileged already, have no meaningful party representation whatsoever. Furthermore, we may notice that many organizations that are not political parties on paper serve the very same function as political parties, winning and maintaining the hegemony of a particular social group. In this respect... You mean, so that, that an example of that might be um, union representatives endorsing a political candidate while not being a particular party? Uh, potentially, yeah. Okay. What were you thinking of when you wrote that? Um, Many uh, social groups that don't have political representation but have organizations that act a little like political parties? Um, Yeah, sure. So like – well, like for example, uh, if we're just looking at the major political parties in the country, there is no political party that's fighting for the hegemony of the working class. Both political parties are bourgeois hegemonic parties. Um, 
Um, and then we also notice that many organizations that are not political parties on paper serve the same function. Uh, Gramsci points to newspapers as an example, and when I was reading it, I was likewise compelled to point to major news sources like Fox and CNN, which, while not affiliated directly with any political party, very openly act as propaganda outlets for the Republican and Democratic parties, respectively. And as a quick aside, the word propaganda is morally neutral in this context. News outlets are propaganda, but that doesn't inherently remove their potential to educate. In fact, it's impossible to argue a political perspective without educating, and at the same time it's impossible to educate without arguing some political perspective. And I would, and do, just as quickly refer rightfully to this podcast as a piece of propaganda that seeks to both educate and argue a political perspective. So just want to make sure that's said. Yeah, anyone who tells you they don't have a bias in whatever their report yeah. is trying to sell you something. Yeah, and anytime you're talking, anytime you're uh, learning about politics from anywhere, I mean, it's propaganda on some level. They're, that's just, propaganda is a morally neutral term. Mm-hmm. Finally, we notice that parties that may be independent of one another on paper can still fight for hegemony of the same social group. While Republicans and Democrats have significant differences, they both fundamentally support the hegemony of the business-owning class, the bourgeoisie. Both parties support the continuation of the capitalist mode of production, a free enterprise. Both parties exalt the small business owner rather than the worker as the backbone of the American economy. This is the kind of analysis that leads many Marxists and socialists in general to judge that America is in reality a one-party state. The two main parties are joined by a wide array of assumptions about life, society, and human nature. The foundation of a genuinely new party, one that's truly independent, rests on that party's ability to reject these assumptions and recognize that society is itself made up. It can be organized for the benefit of the great mass of people rather than a privileged minority. This realization marks the definitive creation of a new political party. Once again, in the vein of Machiavelli, Gramsci goes on to describe the characteristics of the ideal party and its best courses of action. A party consists of three parts. The leadership is the highest level, and it serves to direct the rest of the party and rally it to action. In the Democratic Party, for example, this is the elected officials. In a socialist vanguard party like the Russian Social Democrats under Lenin, there were no party members who held national office, so their leadership would have simply been whoever the party decided was its leaders. The lowest level is the mass of the party membership. For the Democratic Party, this is the voters who register as Democrats, or even just those who consistently vote Democrat in elections. Then there's the intermediate level. These people facilitate the coordination between the higher and lower levels of the party, and generally occupy administrative positions in the apparatus. Gramsci also subscribes to something called the theorem of fixed proportions, which is basically the idea that a party has an ideal ratio of leadership to intermediate to mass membership. This doesn't mean that all parties have the same ideal proportions, but rather that each party has its own ideal. Gramsci urges us to take this theorem with a grain of salt as well, considering the fact that all endeavors concerning human activity will have some qualitative angle, and that humans aren't perfectly interchangeable, so your results may vary. Between those three levels, the leadership is the easiest to destroy because they're the smallest in number and the most notorious. Now, the party should do what it can to avoid this, obviously, but it should also be ready to completely replace the leadership level from the ranks of the intermediate and mass levels. If a party can do this, it's effectively unkillable. Gramsci argues that a party is most effective when it's most homogenous, 
meaning that its members across all levels agree on what the party stands for and what it should do. To this end, Gramsci encourages the party to foster a sense of continuity through its successive leaders, a sort of political tradition. Having a tradition that upholds itself rather than being tied to the ideology of a specific leader makes the party more able to replenish its leadership when necessary and keeps the party homogenous. There are some dangers, though. Fostering this kind of tradition runs the risk of creating a permanent party bureaucracy that holds the true power. Gramsci agrees this would be a bad thing, but ultimately argues that it's a worthwhile risk if it keeps the party unified. In order to prevent this kind of calcification, the party should rotate out its leadership regularly. We see this phenomenon in a lot of anarchist organizing where community leaders are selected by lottery and serve for short periods so that leadership is more of an opportunity to participate in a political continuity rather than exercise one's personal will. And then the leaders feel, I feel, probably in that case, more beholden to their community because they know that they'll soon have their term be over and then they'll be in that same position. Yeah. So. He said it's a worthwhile risk if it keeps the party unified. What if the party that's being unified isn't really doing much of anything anyway, like not fully fleshing out its goals, read the current Democratic Party, like what 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 they say they're going to do is and what they actually hold themselves to? Um, then he would say it's not worth it, correct? Well, the thing about the Democratic Party is that the Democratic Party does not... Um, do any of the things that Gramsci would want his modern prince of a party to do because Gramsci's talking about a socialist party, which nobody in their right mind is under the impression that the Democratic Party is a socialist party. Now, Gramsci obviously doesn't speak directly on the current U.S. election or anything like that, although he does say some things that um, I think apply and map on very nicely to the specific questions that a lot of leftists are asking themselves about their relationship to the Democratic Party that I think we could have a good conversation on. Uh, but that is a little bit later during Gramsci's discussion of economism. So a good party has a strong sense of perspective. And I mean this in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, a party exhibits something called dual perspective. This means that it has a strong understanding of what goals it can accomplish today and what goals it hopes to accomplish eventually and how to get from the former to the latter. If a party looks only to what's possible at the present moment, then it fails to be a political party separate from the already predominant party at all. A party that's only concerned with what's possible given the hegemony of the bourgeoisie, for example, doesn't oppose that hegemony. At the same time, we have to keep our feet planted on the ground. Gramsci advocates a healthy balance between realism and passion. Quote, If one applies one's will to the creation of a new equilibrium among the forces which really exist and are operative, basing oneself on the particular force which one believes to be progressive and strengthening it to help it to victory, one still moves on the terrain of effective reality, but does so in order to dominate and transcend it, So a party needs a strong understanding, not just of its goals, but also of the political climate in which it finds itself. This should be understood on three levels which Gramsci refers to as the relations of force. The highest relation of force is structural causes. This refers to tendencies that will continue to occur regardless of the input of specific humans who facilitate them. In short, this is all the systemic factors that a party will have to deal with. The second relation of force is a matter of consciousness. What do the people at large believe? 
if, as always, there's disagreement among the people, in what proportions? Do the people have an accurate understanding of the systemic relations of power, or do they have a false sense of how things work? All of this is obviously important when charting a course for a political party. Third, a party must maintain awareness of the military relations of force. This does not refer solely to the official military, but rather broadly to the ability of the party and its opponents to exercise violent force on one another. This relation of force is the one that will ultimately be decisive, so its importance can't be overstated. Before we finish up, I need to address an ideological position that Gramsci spends a lot of time criticizing throughout this work, and that's economism. So what the hell is economism? Well, like materialism, it's a way of viewing the world, and in particular, it's a way of determining why big, important historical events happen. The materialist argues that historical development is driven by material factors, and just the same, the economist argues that history is driven by economic factors. There's obviously a lot of overlap between the two, but broadly speaking, economic factors is a narrower classification than material factors. Gramsci already has a lot of problems with this view. Economism tends to see people as always acting in the most literal interpretation of material self-interest. It also tends to credit historical development solely to the discovery of new resources and the invention of new technologies, and thus denies the importance of class consciousness as a historical force. Leftists who organize along economistic lines tend to focus solely on economic action and abstain from political participation. In this context, Gramsci is using economism and syndicalism kind of interchangeably. Uh, I don't personally want to disparage leftists who want to use labor organization and strikes as the main weapon in its arsenal, but Gramsci kind of does, uh, and these are his reasons why. So reason number one, economism is based fundamentally on the false notion that economics can be meaningfully separated from politics. This is the myth of free trade that there exists some way of doing politics and economics so that the politics doesn't influence the economics. This should be obviously absurd. Even what we call free trade in the states is necessarily made possible by state action, particularly the protection of private property rights by police. Reason number two. By abstaining, or at least attempting to abstain, from political action, economists make it impossible to challenge bourgeois hegemony, and therefore making economist organizations a willing participant in that hegemony. In short, Gramsci is calling them liberals, which is a time-honored tradition for Marxists. Reason number three. The economist worldview, in which people always act in their economic self-interest, is really good at making economists sound smart and really bad at effectively explaining things that happen. It condenses all action into a very simple framework that looks really good and then breaks down when large numbers of people inevitably support policy that is against their direct economic interests. Its only response to this phenomenon is to hand wave it with accusations of bad faith and stupidity. You know, working class whites support the Republican Party not because they're in any way animated by bigotry, but simply because they're too stupid to know what their own party stands for and the Republican establishment lies to them to keep it that way. Which, I mean, I, I, can see little, I can see both sides on that particular example. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 always, I, I always cringe a little bit at yeah. disparaging um, working class, especially rural working class white people, because I feel like a lot of them are 
genuinely good people that are definitely misguided. And that might be yeah. too um, bleeding heart lib of me to believe that these people actually want the success of everyone in America. But, you know, it's yeah, I, I can't I can't fully get on board with that. All right. I think we I think we kind of you and you and I, we kind of um, represent two, the two most common like paths for uh, socialists, which is like someone like I'm like someone who was like a liberal my whole life until I became a socialist. And you are you were kind of more on that conservative. T- you were you never identified as a conservative, but no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I was raised in like a cons- definitely conservative leaning family. Um, and then I, I like like. 16 17 was like hmm politics is something i should probably get into so i'll I'll do a quick tangent um i did go to my local libertarian meeting because i saw the meme about um you know you know as a teenager you see something that says i want my gay neighbors to protect their weed plants with guns and you're like this is all that that, (laughs) those all sound like great things you know they got they got liberty in the name i like liberty i know i know right and like the, like the whole thing was the whole, um, I guess like tagline of the party was leave everybody the fuck alone. And I was like, hey, I can get behind that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I go to one local libertarian meeting and uh, the guy stands up and he's like, there's like five of us and I'm the youngest one there by far. Mm-hmm. And there's one woman, um, uh, a Hispanic guy and like four other white dudes. And he's like, wow, we have such a such a diverse group from like all these different backgrounds and i'm like you sure about that buddy i'm not i'm not i'm not entirely following but and, and then the rest of the meeting was just about um ending the fed and electing ron paul um <laughs> uh, which which devolved about how you can expect it. i was watching the sidelines and didn't really participate much but to answer your question yes more more, I, I did come from the opposite end of the Yeah, spectrum, more in the conservative tradition. Not necessarily conservative yourself, but more in that tradition. Yeah, definitely. Which is, I think Which about... Which is good. I think what, that gives us a good dynamic. I, I appreciate I appreciate your, your lib upbringing, Mark. <laughs> it's so cute to me. <laughs> um, I think that's why I fundamentally have much more faith in liberals than you do, though. I... Man, I but, I, but, that's, I ran, but, but in the, I ran but in, the full course of being raised by people that said not 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 raised by being surrounded by people in my hometown that complained about the libtards, and then um, hey, wait, you got a siren going the, on in the background? Oh, never mind, you're good. Wait, no, no. <laughs> it's like waiting for you to talk. I know it's. <laughs> Okay, we're good. Okay, okay, okay. It, I I feel like I did run the full circle of yeah. um, having a lot of a lot of my peers um, trashing the libs, and then me be realizing I'm more left leaning myself and identifying as a liberal, and then coming back around to more of when we started this podcast, which was coming back around to hating the libs. I know it's it's funny. I know people used to call me like liberal, like pejoratively, and I'm like, yeah, and proud. And now I'm like, no, how dare you? That's the one thing. It's like it's like it's like, it's like getting called a liberal by conservatives on Twitter, and you're like, 
yeah, fuck you. And then getting called a liberal by other leftists, and you're like, how dare you? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just imagining you like um, putting your hands on your hips and like pointing one hip to the side and being like, and proud, and like wearing a t-shirt that says proud liberal in like uh, some uh, caricature of a Ben Garrison cartoon. Oh my God, sorry. Okay. Can we get back to this? Yeah, um... <laughs> <laughs> um okay what were we talking about um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. so we're talking about how economist. we're talking about how the economist point of view is one that has a very narrow framework for what can be like the cause of certain events and then when people act out of their economic self-interest they just go oh well they're too stupid to even know like what's going on in their party is made up of people that do economically benefit and they, they just they just lie to them which you know is sometimes true but it's not a comprehensive explanation for why certain things happen. And when you view politics from this framework, it all becomes like this big series of games and tricks. The way Gramsci talks about the economist perspective reminds me a lot of how Josh Olson of the West Wing thing describes West Wing brain, which is a tendency he notices in contemporary liberals where they get so caught up in this gamified version of politics that they begin to lose sight of the reality it's supposed to be based on. Gramsci argues that economists get so caught up in fitting politics into their already existent framework that they can't make space for situations in which that framework fails to explain what's happening. The fourth and final reason is that Gramsci sees economists as being unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices and compromises in order to accomplish its goals, instead looking to get everything it wants with none of the costs. By comparison, Machiavelli is constantly encouraging aspiring princes to sacrifice things you care a little bit about, mainly integrity, if it gets you to your most important political ends. According to Gramsci, economists subscribe to their theories of social development to a nearly religious degree, and therefore believe it is better to wait for the perfect conditions to arise than to fight and make sacrifices for half measures. We, the left, need to keep stock of which of our goals are essential and which are expendable. We need to keep stock of who is an enemy that needs to be fought and maybe destroyed, and who can potentially be courted. Quote, If the union of two forces is necessary in order to defeat a third, a recourse to arms and coercion, even supposing that these are available, can be nothing more than a methodological hypothesis. The only concrete possibility is compromise. Force can be employed against enemies, but not against a part of one's own side, which one wishes rapidly to assimilate, and whose goodwill and enthusiasm one needs. End quote. Yeah, I can, I can get behind that at least in part. I, I know, I know, none of us are enthused about uh, Mr. Biden's candidacy, but at the same time, if he got behind. Medicare for all and aggressive climate change action. That that would be enough to make me start canvassing for him, at least a little bit. I think there's you there's know, something I, that I oh, donate or something. Well, no, I, I, that that's a, that's basically what I was gonna say. But it, it it that would that would motivate me. Like people people in Bernie's camp always said like we're motivated by policy more than anything. So if that's true, then you should be able to get a shitload of support or uh, unless those people are just nihilists 
and were swept up by the idea of Bernie. 2020 has created a lot of nihilists, undeniably. Yeah, but they just call themselves doomers because <laughs> they want to use cool Twitch slang. Um, yeah, do you, do you remember from that very beginning of this script where I talked about how the big contradiction in Italian society was how the petty tyrants were kind of fighting amongst each other? And, and, and so that created space for other powers to kind of come in and influence and get their way in Italian politics. Yeah. And how, like, let's say that, you know, let's, let, let's fully adopt like that Marxist framework that Republicans and Democrats are actually one in the same party. So what, 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 what the fighting between them that's occurring is, is inter is intra-party factionalism. Okay. Socialists should still use that to our advantage. You know, there's a reason why people say that liberals always side with fascists when socialism becomes too much of a threat. It's because fascists are better at fighting socialists than liberals are. <laughs> like, so I personally want, like, let, let's call it the one bourgeois American party. I want that party to be in as weak a position as possible to withstand attacks from the left as possible. And frankly, um, Biden is, is going to be in a weaker position. And that's for uh, one big reason, which is that Trump can be a fascist and it makes him more popular. Biden kind of has to trade fascism for popularity amongst his people because we've been, you know, you know, plenty of libs will just get on board. Don't get me wrong. But I think that, like I said, we talked about this before. I think that if we totally reject the idea that average everyday people who aren't socialists today can be made socialists by things that happen, by socialists who are already socialists taking advantage of things that happen for propagandistic purposes to get people on board. I mean, if you don't accept that that's possible, then then you are a nihilist and and Gramsci has no time for you. Yeah, one of the things I hate the most is when people litmus test like other people's personal beliefs and like political journeys to how they got to where they are. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, go fuck yourself. You used to be, um, I don't know, you, you voted for... Ted Cruz, but now you are on board in 2016, but you're on board with Medicare for all now. So fuck you because you used to believe these things. Like, isn't that what you want is to convert people into your way of thinking? And like, that's how do you think that was going to happen? I was actually talking to I was talking to Ab earlier about this today, about how like the language that uh, leftists who get mad when they find out that other leftists used to be, I mean, like bad political ideologies used to be used to be like paleo conservatives used to be fascists like i mean that's a totally a thing there's plenty of leftists out there that used to be fascists and the way that like leftists who don't want to welcome those people in talk about them reminds me a lot of like the way that transphobes talk about trans women where it's like they always want to conjure to mind that image of the image of the person who was a cis man and then yesterday decided they were going to start wearing a dress and they still and like that's it and like that's what the universal image of a trans woman is and don't get me wrong like that person is just as much a woman as any other trans woman but the, the they're, they're trying to conjure up this image that's like very scary to people who are already on board with them and i kind of get the same feeling where it's like where it's like the image of the leftist who used to be a fascist is always supposed to be this person who was like Sieg Heiling yesterday and now like listens to Chapo Trap House and thinks that like everyone should be cool with them for that. Like, or like listens to Cumtown maybe would be. 
I've never I've listened actually, to Come Town. I was just about to say the same thing. I've never listened to a single. I've episode. heard people talk about it, and I'm terrified of it. Although I've like heard Stavi on like other podcasts, and he's pretty hilarious. I've heard Stavros do his stand up. Yeah, it's, he's it's funny. not bad. It helps that he's missing that tooth. That like really. I think it's charming. Really, extremely for, charming. How given given everything else, it meshes with the rest of his character nicely. Oh yeah, I feel like he should constantly be wearing overalls and no shirt. But also a snapback is his aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to wear snapbacks when I was a freshman in college. And I'm and 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 someone who is someone who was very dear to me, I stopped wearing it. I had I had one hat that I really liked. I stopped wearing it because someone who was very dear to me told me that I really gave off the vibe that I was overcompensating by wearing it. And I was so embarrassed, and I never wore. What it. hat could you possibly wear that would look like it? Was it like a cowboy hat? No, no, it was. A, it was like no, it was like a. It was like a flat rimmed snapback. Overcompensating. Yeah. Oh, like you. To to me, whenever someone says something like that, I always think like they're trying to like overcompensate for something, as in their dick size, and like like. Like was he saying like okay you're 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 trying to appear that you have an absolute hog by wearing the snapback? <laughs> no, no, no. They were talking about no. It's because I'm short. Oh, yeah. See, I totally forgot. <laughs> it's because you haven't seen we, me we, in person in so long. I know we've been far away from each other for too long. I mean, that would make more sense if you're wearing like an Abraham Lincoln stovepipe hat. Yeah. I'm just trying to add a couple extra inches. That would make more sense. Well, what if I is baseless? What if I like do the hairspray and I get my hair really big? Oh, like I used to do in in sophomore year. I had like you little, did like, used to do qu- that. Yeah, you crazy. Almost quaff going. It was better than my man bun. The, those you never saw those days. And yeah, I, you, I, I never saw graphic evidence. Never with a man bun. Do we have it any other? <laughs> do we have any other political things to talk about? <laughs> Oh no! I I mean I mean hairspray is pretty political. Hairspray is good. Um, the musical, not yeah. not the sub. Actually, well, hairspray can be political because it's um directly contributing to climate change, even if it's a little bit. But You're talking about they they hairspray created the uh, well not just hairspray but chlorofluorocarbons and hairspray uh, contributed to the hole in the ozone layer. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. I'm so sorry. Anyway. If I'm going to plug things, you should plug. Things. I'm first gonna plug our new founded Reddit sub, which is r slash we read theory pod. Um, come on and ask us questions. Talk about theory. Talk about new things you've read, or maybe articles that you see that might relate to things you've heard here. Um, yeah, and Mark are on there moderating it, mm-hmm. look, looking, listening. And uh, we, we're going to be, from this point on, posting every episode um, as it comes out on the sub. So if you have questions, comments, critiques, suggestions for new episodes, um, I would love it if you guys would come chat with us about it uh, right in there. And if you do want to chat with us more directly, you can always follow us at We Read Theory Pod on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I posted a little bit ago about my girlfriend taking the MCAT and... She and she did she did pretty well, and she was really appreciative of everyone who um, shouted out some support. Oh, and we, I I think this is gonna be like taking out right. 
of the beginning. We mentioned it. I think I might have mentioned it earlier, what? but um, we have a new mascot. Um, he can be seen on my camera currently. His name's Linus. I posted him on Twitter earlier. He's an extremely good boy. He's five pound cat. <laughs> oh wait, do you want? We should. We should actually say goodbye. Oh, we should. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? What was? Shit! What was? What was our ending? Fuck. I don't remember. That's okay. Let's just say goodbye. Let's just say goodbye. No! 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 Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Oh, what's our? Oh, you did the Truman Show ending now. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can do the Truman Show ending if you like. Thank you. All right. Do you want me to just tell you what it is? It's well, I if if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yeah. That's it. All right. I think that about wraps it up here, yep. and. If I don't see you guys, love you guys. Um, and if I don't see you, fuck, that was so bad. <laughs> do it again. It's okay. Okay, okay. Let, me, let me do it again. Um, all right. Uh, I think that about wraps it up here. Uh, love you guys. And if I don't see you, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> what? That was correct. No, no, it was good. Don't worry. I could, I could, I could edit out my laughter. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's end. Let's end this place. What did I? What did I fuck up? No, you didn't fuck up at all. It's great. Wait, good morning. Oh, there's only three of them, isn't there? It's good morning, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Oh, okay. Um, we're leaving it. A, we're is, leaving it. It's fine. It's fine. All right. The fact that it's fucked up is a little better. All right, I'm, gives it character. I'm, all right, I'm ending the recording.